This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. The minefield takes on well, almost a literal meaning today, I guess. We don't often do a show like this, and I will confess that uh, Scott Stevens, my co-host, and me, Willie Dali, did go back and forth about whether or not today's show was possible to do in a minefield sort of a way. You be the judge. Hello, Scott. <laughs> hey, Willie. Um, we're talking uh, about, what do you call this, an escalation or whatever you want to call it. We're talking about the Russia-Ukraine conflict mm. and Vladimir Putin's recent statements and what that reveals perhaps about Vladimir Putin and what it means for the war. And we've discussed Ukraine once before, and every time this comes up, or anything really like it, Mm. we have this fear Mm. that um, we're going to end up in a foreign policy think tank, which is not what this is. That's right. So how are you going to get Aristotle into this one? Well, uh, Aristotle is a little bit... Well, actually, Aristotle is less tricky than you would think. Than Simone Weil? Simone Weil is easy. I could, I I could work Simon Veig into anything. Believe it or not, metaphysics is very very easy to work into this one. Right. But it's not a matter of shoehorning or sort of fitting anything in. Look, I one of the things I guess that we try to do on a show like this, we don't want to do prescriptions. We don't want to do predictions. Both of those are well outside of our remit. There are some things that have come up, I think, in the way that public discourse, some of the public conversations surrounding Ukraine, some of the obligations that may well rest on Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's psychology, the extent to which he is indispensable to the entire conflict. If, other, if only somebody would simply assassinate him, then mm. you know the entire thing would go away, much less we know what's going on in his mind. All of those things make me suspicious on any number of different fronts. Especially because you get very different accounts of those things, I've found anyway, when you talk to people who've met him yeah. or worked with him. Mm. You go from an image of a madman to an image of a deeply rational, calculating sort of a man. Uh, and that may not be easy to square with the things that you see, or at Mm. least what gets reported to us. But I think it introduces a level of doubt or a a level of confusion about, um, I don't know how diagnosable uh, Mm. a lot of this is, especially Mm. sitting where we are, which is one of the things that makes me nervous about a show like this is we're sitting in possibly the worst position, I think, to try to observe such things and and think about them. Mm. And yet here we are. Okay. Push that further. What do you mean? Why are we in the worst position? Because I think you're right, but I think we may think you're right. For, for different, different reasons. reasons. I might be right for the wrong reason. No, um, different. We're a long way away. Yeah. We, that is you and I, and most people who are talking about this and thinking about this lack the relevant language. Yep. I think if you spoke Russian or you spoke Ukrainian, then you would probably have quite a different and probably much deeper perspective mm. on things. We are also in an environment that is almost unanimously on one side of the conflict, which means that we really are unlikely to have a grasp in a kind of faithful way of the narrative of the other side. So we construct a narrative that makes sense to us, which is this is an expression of kind of pure malevolence or pure evil or something like that. Or or bare utilitarian territorialist expansionism. Yeah. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that narrative is necessarily incorrect, Mm. but I just feel like we're in a bad position to know because it's all that we're hearing. And and the only way to hear it differently would be to have language resources and informational resources that we don't have. And then there's the overlay of those resources would all come with a particular overlay because of the nature of the Russian government. So... It's not a great world, are we? Four minutes in, and I've pretty much explained why it is that I we find so much this of this unknowable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the other aspect, I think, that's worth mentioning, and this is one of the reasons that I think this topic becomes unavoidable for us, is that until the last week or so, we were also, and I mean we here in Australia, we in the quote-unquote West, uh, excluding Western Europe, we are untouched by the conflict or likely to remain untouched by the conflict. There's the whole nature of sanctions. There's a certain degree of sacrifice that has needed to be borne in the name of solidarity. The the last time we discussed this, it was exactly 
along these lines. Mm. Uh, if we do in fact confess, if we rightly say that Ukraine as a nation must not fall as a matter of moral and geopolitical commitment, and if we acknowledge at exactly the same time that the threat of Russian reprisal and the looming threat of Russian nuclear armaments means that any kind of direct confrontation with Russia is unthinkable, is unimaginable, then what are the best ways of squaring those two imperatives? Uh, avoiding nuclear conflict at all costs and not letting a sovereign nation fall in the face of whatever motives we want to ascribe to Russia. And one of the things we discussed last time is that solidarity with Ukraine, arming Ukraine, and at the same time having the preparedness to bear the sacrifices that need to be borne. Again, the closer you get to the conflict, the more the sacrifices are going to be. They're going to be in the form of energy. They're going to be profound. I mean, there's been you know, dramatic inflation in the UK and the US. There's been some inflation directly out of the Ukraine-Russia conflict that's been born mm -hmm. here. And those things need to have, I think, a moral overlay. Yes, things are more expensive than they otherwise would have been, especially fuel. But that expense... And our willingness to bear that expense is part of our expression of solidarity. I worry a bit about that. Okay. I see what you're saying and I see the attractiveness. I'm not trying to prosecute a case afresh. I'm going back to no, this I know. is when we first but discussed I, But I worry a bit about this idea that we should understand things like our struggles with cost of living mm. through this prism. Because what I fear would flow from that, if we really framed it that way, is that you would very quickly trigger a resentment yes. towards those costs that we don't actually experience you're right. now. You're right. <laughs> and no, so you're right. I think that would be a far more fragile mm. way for us to meet the challenge of inflation. Mm. Right? Also, there are other elements to do with of mega flooding through, you know, important agricultural regions in New South Wales and Queensland, and we're seeing that start to correct itself and all, all of that. Mm. But um, I'm sort of inherently attracted to this idea that we should understand this as being part of our contribution, mm. part of our sacrifice, at the same time as I worry about what that would actually cause. Look, I, I couldn't agree more. And the likelihood of that turning into resentment, a kind of jaundice, I think is a very real one. I guess yeah. the point that I'm making now, the point that I made when we first discussed this, was that there are ways of, quote unquote, supporting Ukraine that go beyond Ukrainian flag emoji mm. on one's yeah. Twitter handle, for instance. Here, however, I think something different is at play. And this is what made, I think, this particular conversation, this particular topic unavoidable for us on any number of levels. There have been two great developments, I think, since Russia first thundered into Ukraine at the end of February this year. One, of course, is that as a result of a massive increase of armaments and support provided by predominantly Western nations and a steady flow of guaranteed funding approved almost every week by the U.S. Congress, it has both emboldened and it has made Ukraine feel more than supported enough to continue to press certain offensive lines. In other words, not just preventing Russia from entering Kyiv, but also taking, as we've seen in September, taking certain vital regions in both the Northeast and the South. Um, I mean, you know, there are a number of reasons for that, why they were been in both. I mean, one is the technological and the financial support. Another is the knowledge that a winter is looming that is going to provide devastatingly mm. difficult conditions in which to fight. Some of the work that Volodymyr Zelensky has done repeatedly over the last uh, two months in particular has been to try to go to various lengths both to uh, secure ongoing support but also to repay Western Europe's and North America's faith in their efforts. And so, you know, the importance of there being certain victories of pushing back Russian forces was very, very important. So we've seen, I think, a surprising successfulness on the part of Ukrainian forces. We've seen a capacity to repel Russia uh, and to retake regions that I think not many people were wholly expecting. That, however, that very success has had a paradoxical effect. When the struggle is cast in metaphysical terms, when this is cast by Russia as an existential struggle 
for Russia itself. In other words, it's not really the Ukrainians that are battling with this, but Ukraine are merely proxies for NATO or for mm. the West. In his speech, Vladimir Putin even refers to uh, the Russian, sorry, the Ukrainian forces as effectively being slaves, as being indentured servants mm. of the NATO forces. But, but that is also hitched to a particular view of Ukraine in particular. Of course it as is. As being something that is Russian. Yes, right. spiritually, spiritually yes. Russian, yeah. in fact. So it, it's not just that it's a, a NATO conflict and that the NATO border has kind of crept closer to Russia and Ukraine is now the you know, the pass of the land over which you fight because if that becomes NATO, then Russia's in trouble. It's not just that. Yes. It has to be Ukraine specifically. Yes. Yeah. So, again, part of the rationale, part of the alibi for why Russia is not dominating in this conflict is that they are not, in fact, fighting Ukraine. Um, but they are, in fact, fighting, what, is, what did he say in his recent speech, the entirety of the mechanistic forces of the West assembled mm. on this particular border trying to divide and dissolve uh, Russia's well-being. So it means that Ukraine's very success has raised another prospect. And that is, well, there are two prospects, in fact. One that wholly concerns Russia, and that is conscription. The, the peacetime army is simply not enough, and therefore uh, a partial mobilization was announced trying to gather together somewhere between 300,000 and possibly one to one and a half million Russians to, to fight in Ukraine. But then there's the other issue. So just recently, four referenda have been called in four regions um, in the east and in the south that have been taken by Russia for referenda to discern whether the inhabitants of those regions mm. want to join Russia as annexed regions. Like we saw in Crimea. Like we saw in Crimea. Where I think in one region there was a 123% vote. Uh, yes, yes. Averaged out it was 97, yeah. uh, which is just kind of extraordinary. The point is, these regions are already occupied. The idea of there being a free vote is almost laughable. The problem is, the problem is, once these lands are annexed are viewed as belonging to Russian territory once again. It means that any further conflict on the part of the Ukrainian army, and especially if that army are viewed as NATO or West proxies, any renewed conflict in those regions is going to be viewed then as an assault on Russian territory. Mm. And the threat that Vladimir Putin makes is that any assault on the integrity of Russian territory will be met by Russian retaliation, which in this context has to mean, has to mean nuclear armaments, nuclear missiles, nuclear mm -hmm. strikes. Now, for me, that necessarily changes the calculus of this particular war. So there's something thrilling, I think. There's something rightly thrilling about seeing Ukraine successful in the face of Russian aggression. There's something thrilling and there's something rightly thrilling about Western solidarity with Ukraine. But as soon as the prospect of nuclear strike is raised, it seems to me that something necessarily changes. There would be something morally corrupt, I think, in at that point simply backing down. Well, if he brings nukes into it, then we must give him what we want. We must succumb to the annexation. Mm. But there's also something I think morally corrupt or morally naive about saying he would never do, Putin that is, he would never do such a thing. So this is my question. What does the threat or the prospect of nuclear retaliation on the part of a Russian leader who, by all accounts, is wounded internally and externally, what moral calculation does that bring to the table? Does that mean something as far as the West goes and the limits of the solidarity that we're able to display? Of the pressure that maybe can be brought to the table to try to broker some kind of tenuous or hopefully long-lasting peace? Or is the moral calculation here solely, solely on the part of those who are bearing the majority of the sacrifice? In other words, do we have no moral business whatsoever to dictate a particular outcome over a sovereign parcel of land that is solely the purview of the Ukrainians? What's the sovereign parcel of land you're talking about? Because the very notion of sovereign parcels of land is exactly what's in issue here. Mm. So I'm not sure how to answer that question. What do you mean? Well, I just mean that they are sovereign in their own territory. Yeah, but the territory is what's being disputed and eroded and of course it's manipulated. Being, of and... course it's being disputed, but the West does not dispute the sovereignty. 
Whatever dispute there is, is what strings go along with the provision of armaments and ongoing economic support. Mm. So is that simply in the name of solidarity because this land must not fall? Is this simply geostrategic? Or is there something, is there a point at which the greater concern for peace and a stable peace, does that bring a kind of moral calculation to the table that may well override you're bearing the brunt of the sacrifice, you're bearing the entirety of the risk, of the threat here. Therefore, we can't force you, we can't compel you to do anything. It sounds like what you're saying is that once nuclear weapons enter the purview of all the relevant actors here, then some red line or other has to be crossed. And it will just be a question of which red line hmm. you want to cross. That sounds good, yeah. One could be the red line of of support for Ukraine, right? So this is set up at, from the very beginning as the ultimate cosmic war between democracy and totalitarianism, right? Which some people, you know, Jacinda Ardern specifically wanted to resist, probably for reasons to do with New Zealand's own national interest and relationship with China and so on. But nonetheless, that narrative, she resists. But um, it's set up that way. Now, if it's if you genuinely feel that, then it becomes a situation where Russia must be defeated by mm. any means. And that would mean nothing short of Western military intervention. That's right. And probably immediately before Russia really has a chance to deploy mm. nuclear weapons. I suspect... It would also incidentally have to mean no more Putin as president. Yes. Yeah. And this is where I worry about the narratives we receive and That's so right. on, but would that make a difference? I don't know. And is he under so much domestic pressure now and losing the support of so many key people that that would actually be because quite of achievable? Because of conscription. Yeah, no, and just because the war has not gone the way... I mean, there, there was this whole national propaganda about how easy this was going to be and so on, and it clearly turned out not to be that. So that's one way of saying here's our red line, and so now we have to cross the red line of non-intervention, mm. which I feel was a really important one, because actually if you could succeed in a non-interventionist way then that's a remarkable achievement. Mm. I mean, you're intervening in the form of sending weapons, but not direct military engagement, because you preserve the meaning of NATO and non-NATO. But also you would then bring to heel what most of the world regards as an aggressor without turning it into you know, a bloodbath that engulfs the whole world, mm, which it could right. potentially become. So, that would be, so that's a big red line to break, but you would probably, the way you've set it up, Mm. is you would have to break that red line or you would have to break the red line that says this is about democracy versus totalitarianism. And you'd have to say, you know what, we now recalibrate this. We see this as a border conflict. Uh, we're very sorry about this. This does happen around the world. We can't get involved in all of them. We choose now not to get involved anymore in this one. And I'm very sorry, Ukraine, but you have to, to bear the brunt mm. of this. So uh, this, this would be where, say, history... Mm. And the messy nature of realpolitik essentially blur the borders yep. between Russia and Ukraine. We simply allow the fact that, okay, these things are probably more closely associated than they, you yeah. know, then you, you start to other more discreet. To certain aspects of Russia's narrative. And then would it really be that bad if Ukraine, which is already a very large nation, simply gave over certain portions? Yes, I know it looks like we're acquiescing. Mm -hmm to the threats of an aggressor, but nonetheless, the alternative is more horrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other option, though, and this is where I worry about veering into foreign policy podcast territory, yeah. or think tank territory, is that the conscription itself reveals something, and that is a reluctance to rush to nuclear weapons. This is a way of shoring up a situation that is troublesome. It's hard to say how the conscription is going to be enormously successful in winning because, A, you're seeing now an exodus of Russians from Russia. Mm. I don't want to be conscripted. I've got to get out of here. So you're seeing that. But you're also seeing, well, you're, well, there are a whole lot of people who are now going to become part of the Russian military who aren't trained yeah. and have no one really to train them mm. because they're all busy being deployed. Um, my understanding from people who follow these things is that Russia's the Russian military training works at a, a local or a, a unit level rather than the more centralised uh, models that, for example, we use or the United States would use, and that's therefore a bit more inefficient. Mm -hmm. 
the Ukraine. You do also just in, instantly. You also have the added problem that to date, I mean, Russia has been drawn on mercenaries, which mm. I, I mean, there's not necessarily any great love of country there. Mm. Um, they've been drawn on prisoners, and increasingly overrepresented in the in the conscription effort so far have been ethnic minorities. Mm. So I mean, you've just got all sorts of. There's every reason to believe that the troops don't really want to be there. Yes, that's right. And you've seen them abandon some of their. Posts. I mean, that's what you saw in the regions that Ukraine hmm. took back when it did that bluff and that's right. It, right. So the, uh, the Russian soldiers, according to the reporting we're seeing, and this would obviously be Ukrainian inflected, hmm. but they just said, no, well, we're not fighting anymore. <laughs> we're just getting out of here. Hmm. So there's a lack of, well, on one version of it, the version that we receive, there's a lack of heart. There will be a lack of expertise. The nature of Ukraine's defence is kind of, you know, this porcupine-style defence, which means they have actually the ability to hit Russia behind the border and Russian forces behind the border quite away. So they'll probably get a lot of the people who are new conscripts. So what that means is it would be hard to imagine, if all that's true, it would be hard to imagine that what Putin's after here is all these conscripts turning the war around and winning it for Russia because... It's a very difficult task and more likely what it would be after is buying time. Mm. And if that's the case, the question would be, what time are you buying? Yeah, see, I, I disagree. Why do you disagree? So one of the things that's allowed the war to be the war in the first place is mm. the reassurance that this is something wholly at arm's length from the Russian population. Mm. This is a special military operation. It's going to be, for the most part, a cakewalk. Most Russian persons will not feel it. Mm -hmm. When they do feel it, it's because the West are being bloody-minded and imposing unfair unilateral sanctions just because they hate Russia. So conscription becomes a way of laying the ground to use nuclear weapons sooner rather than later? Well, this is the problem. Conscription then becomes, no, this is not something that can be at arm's length. This affects you directly. It was mm. always going to be wildly unpopular, which means it is something like a last-ditch effort. I mean, it is a kind of point of no return. It troubled me on all sorts of different grounds. A few days ago when Margarita Simonyon, who's a senior editor with Russia Today, I don't know how accurate this is going to prove to be, but she said conscription is a line, and after conscription, there are one of two options. Total Russian victory or nuclear war. That's it. So I think we're maybe minimizing just what a radical move conscription, in fact, is or a partial mobilization. This is a serious, serious step to take, and it was bound to be unpopular on all sorts of different fronts. If this doesn't work, there is no other option. But, That's my problem. Sure, but what I'm saying is, what, what do you mean by work? So if the aim is to draw out the conflict, prolong the conflict until winter hits in the hope that when Western Europe goes through winter, its solidarity with Ukraine breaks mm. because... Energy. Yeah, yeah. The idea of living through a European winter yeah. with snow and ice and stuff without having access to heating, suddenly people go, you know what, maybe this isn't our war. And then Russia can win that way, right? That could be, that could be the gambit. And if that's the gambit, then the nuclear option remains the nuclear option. It's, it's, it's remote. I don't know any of this. I mean, I, I think to some extent it, it's just unknowable. Mm. And I can see why you would be chilled by a comment on Russia today, but I can also see why you wouldn't want to base your analysis on it because, you know, you're, you're there looking at something that's probably propagandistic. Mm. I'm not basing analysis on anything. I also don't think that conscription is going to – conscription isn't a measure that you take in order to – let Russia stay in the game up to and through winter. I mean, this is a four to six month minimum measure to take. The issue is we have a leader who has a view of the world and a metaphysical concept of Russia, Russia's borders and Russia's world historical place that doesn't map easily onto Western realpolitik. Mm -hmm. We have... But possibly even Russian realpolitik. <laughs> Yeah. Because that's the point. Once it gets metaphysical in that way, mm. it's not real. No, that, that's exactly right. I guess the question for me is, you know, we've not faced the unimaginable now since the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
the threat, the prospect of some kind of nuclear strike. And there is something, even if it were, say, a limited, tactical, regionally very, very, very specific, targeted strike, something happens when you open that particular door. Mm. What was unthinkable suddenly becomes possibly gradualist. Mm. What next? What then becomes the next thing? There are pragmatic and realpolitik questions. There are also normative questions. The saber-rattling and the moral denunciations that tend to surround Putin back him into a corner Hmm. so that he has no future in any kind of sustainable or lasting peace. Are there ways of trying to achieve, trying to broker some sort of peace that A, doesn't reward Russia for its aggression, B, doesn't make the entire thing a zero-sum game for Putin himself, Hmm. And that C doesn't compromise the extent, the depth, the principled nature of the solidarity into which the rest of the West has entered with Ukraine. As soon as we, every time we press this in a kind of zero sum direction, there can be no compromise. There can be. Yeah. A red line has to be crossed. A red line has to be crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we bring in our guest? Let's. William Partlett is Associate Professor at Melbourne Law School. He's the author of The Post-Soviet as Post-Colonial, A New Paradigm for Understanding Constitutional Dynamics in the Former Soviet Empire. Uh, I think I saw it, William, in the uh, airport book stand as I came in. No, I didn't. It's not. (laughs) That would have been surprising. It's not not that kind of book. No. I'm really interested, before we actually get into realpolitik, Mm. I'm really interested in your particular diagnosis, seeing Russia as a post-colonial state. There's something very interesting that's going on there that actually has something directly to do with what it is we're talking about today. Do you want to explain the basic thesis? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the idea is, is that, you know, we think of Russia and we think of, you know, Ukraine and that part of the world as 30 years ago, the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, you have these successor states. You have actually 15 successor states all through Central Asia the Caucasus in Eastern Europe, including Russia. And we think of that as like, this was the end of history, right? This was what Francis Fukuyama said. This is the end of history. Democracy is now, has now won. Um, but there was another story that I think is much deeper. And if we look at the history of the last 30 years, and if we look at what's happening now in Ukraine, is, is that this was for many people, and Putin is one of them, and the people who are around him are also... One of this, this was the end of an empire. This was the collapse of the Russian, of Russian empire building, which had been reached its essentially its zenith in World War II, when Russia went all the way to Berlin. And this kind of empire building was, you know, has essentially fallen into absolute collapse in 1991, 1992. Putin himself was in Dresden in in Germany, remembers this humiliation, feels this humiliation. And if you watch him now, you can sense very much that this war is about that humiliation, about that that idea of that post-imperial kind of humiliation and how to overcome it. Can I just pick up one, this one really interesting point here? that, I don't know, it baffles me and fascinates me in equal measures. So one of the more influential kind of public intellectuals in Russia, and certainly someone who Putin himself seems to respect quite greatly, Alexander Dugin, Mm -hmm. who is a philosopher, he's a metaphysician. His idea of kind of, of Eurasian metaphysics and the deeper spiritual meaning of Russia uh, the priority of the seas over the lands. I mean, all sorts of really kind of wonderful things that you don't really expect to read outside of theology textbooks, for mm-hmm. instance. His syncretistic, it baffles me that he's a fan of Carl Schmitt and Carl Schmitt's critique of liberalism, a critique of liberalism that goes all the way down. And yet Schmitt himself is kind of deeply fascist and authoritarian in his own conception of political theory and of the meaning of constitution. Constitution as a kind of spiritual embodiment of a people that holds the identity of the people, even when the people kind of come and change. There is this rabid anti-liberalism, the corruptions of the West, and all these sources are being drawn together to try to combat the influences, the incursions, the corruptions of the West, the West as neo-Nazis, the West as libertines, the West as... um, So to some extent, there is this sense that's being projected of Russia as genuinely under threat, culturally under threat, geographically under threat, but also now 
as you're raising historically under threat. There is a kind of existential dimension to this as well. Just how deep a motivating force is this, I suppose, in the decisions that are being made? Look, I think, I mean, Dugan is is just one example of, of a number of different ways of understanding the Russian imperial project that go back for hundreds of years, right? Mm-hmm. And the Russian imperial project has always been a very different one than the Western imperial project. Western imperialism, obviously Brit- Britain's imperial project was about essentially making money, right? It was a very economic one. The Russian one has always been one of defensive fear and creating buffer zones with other countries between them and Europe. And and there's reasons for this, right? Russia's been invaded by massive armies on numerous occasions, right? Napoleon, the Nazis, the Swedes, and so forth. And this happened over, you know, hundreds of years. So so Russian empire building is this kind of idea that they are they must pull together in this flat landmass to avoid invasion. And this is really a sense of what, you know, Putin is is embodying and he's making these types of arguments, right? And Dugan is just one example of of this of these examples. It's is, you know, like the need for this kind of collective Eurasian landmass to defend itself against an acquisitive West and an individualistic West and, a, you know, a corrupt West. And of course, and you, you tie that with the World War II myth. So you call them neo-Nazis. But of course, that's really what's, I think, motivating Putin. And that gives us a sense is like when we think about this conflict, is Putin really, you know, if Putin were to suddenly die, would would it change? Probably not. There are numbers of people around him who think this way as well. There is This is going to Walid's point earlier. These are the mental maps that these individuals inhabit that are very foreign to us as individuals sitting in Australia today. Hmm. I'm inclined to agree with that because as you noted, that was kind of my hunch. Hmm. But is there something particular about this moment because of the way in which the rhetoric, the propaganda has been proven so thoroughly and quickly false? You know, the the rhetoric of dominance, of, of the ease of this, the weakness of Ukraine, the might of mm. Russia, all of this has been laid bare. Otherwise, you don't end up at conscription. So might this be a moment where the edifice of these mental maps, if you like, to mix metaphors, um, starts to to crumble when yeah. the thread is pulled. Absolutely. I mean and, and and as I make the point in the book, these these are contested, right? This is a this is a mental map that exists amongst a certain group, and often in many cases the kind of like the baby boomer generation of of Russia. Um, but young generations, look at the look at the borders right now, right? With mobilization, we have hundred we have probably almost three hundred thousand people who've met young men who've left Russia in the last six Seven days. Um, so it's it's been a significant suggestion that th- this is not necessarily shared across Russia, but it's shared by this elite that's in charge. Even right? still, so so yes. let's let's assume a, a tomorrow where there's no Putin. Mm. Does that create room among the elite to mm. say, I think we need to change course here. We can't just keep pursuing this because we've seen the direction this is taking I'm, us. I mean, the, this gets into, you know, we don't, we'll take it away from foreign policy, kind of wonkish <laughs> discussions, but look, there might be some members of the elite who are willing to, or a little less ideologically kind of, you know, uh, committed to this perception of, of Russian identity and so forth. And, and let's hope so, right? Because that I think really is one of the ways we're possibly going to get out of this, um, is that there will be some sort of palace coup or some sort of elite split and that there we will see you know, some sort of de-escalation result as a result of that. But it's certainly, there are certainly lots of people, and you mentioned Margarita Simonyan and others, who are really pushing this line because they know Putin believes this. And the, and he's the one, He's he's got all the, he holds the cards, and they're, so they're trying to appeal to him, the people, the party of war. There are other people maybe who are remaining silent at the moment, let's hope, who could potentially step up if there is, if this continues to go poorly. Um, but we just don't, that's, again, that's what we just don't know. The, the other option is that there's an ideological weakening on the Western side, right? Mm. Because you've described the ideological framework that seems to be driving the Russian elite. Yeah. There's clearly an ideological framework driving the Western elite as well, which is to do with this framing of totalitarianism versus democracy, Russia as the aggressor, where Russia might see themselves as actually being defensive, all of these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and so you have these, these. Uh, I guess it's, it's the reason it does feel like a second Cold War is it really is deeply ideological. It's It's incompatible ideologies running into each other. I mean, I, and I think on that, we need to resist that framing mm. strongly, right? We need to resist, because let me just step step this out. This is unprecedented. This is the first time we've seen in 60 years, 50 years, a sovereign country entering another sovereign country. It's not a, just a border dispute, but actually annexing land, right? Mm. So, and this is not just the, the West saying, this is, this is the international law structure we've existed under since the end of the World War II, which is 
that, you know, no longer is imperialism and the actual acquisition of land through force acceptable under international law. Of course, it was 100 years ago. It no longer is. And I think that's the way we should begin to think about this and framing this as totalitarianism versus democracy or framing this as a second world, second Cold War is actually the frame that Putin wants. This is why he's raised nuclear weapons, I think. This is why Scott mentioned uh, Margarita Simonyan's kind of this is this is an existential struggle with what they call the collective West. That's their framing. Our framing, I think, and our moral solidarity and moral kind of responsibility here is to understand this is actually a fundamental challenge to the agreed upon international legal structure that exists, that's been agreed upon by all countries. Yeah, but if I'm Russia, yeah. I'm saying, well, hang on, you, you say this, mm. but you're quite happy to go and remove democratically elected regimes to install puppet regimes that do your bidding. Um, you're quite happy to spruik regime change when there's no clear and present threat to you. And here are the list of conflicts that are examples of that, or here are the list of yeah. interventions, et cetera, et cetera. So you may not be annexing land in the sense that you want to redraw the political map, but at least what we're doing is honest. What you're doing is in the service of some kind of mythology whereby you annex without formal annexation. Well, I mean, but that actually has a huge, there's a, there's a massive difference between that, right? And there's no question, I'm not going to defend what the United States has done in Iraq or in, or in other parts of the world. Um, and there's, you know, yeah, I mean, there, you can go down the list. And of course, Putin and, and the Russians do that quite often. But yeah, it's never been a process of actually territorial acquisition and, and annexation. And, and that is significant. That's, I think that is a significantly important difference. Why is that a significantly important difference from a moral point of view? It's because we've all agreed right, in the international legal system that we don't do that anymore, right? It is, it is fundamentally baked into the United Nations Charter. It is fundamentally baked into the, uh, into the decolonization impetus behind the post-World War II international order that was there to preserve peace, right? And if, you know, and if we were to somehow, say, force the Ukrainians, which I don't question whether we can do that, force mm. the Ukrainians to the, to the table to negotiate, what are, we, what are we showing to other countries in the world with respect to annexation of territory, right? Annexation, you know, regime change or, or you know, the kind of things the United States have done have, have been bad, but compare that to what was happening in the 19th century, right? And I think, we, you know, you guys were discussing a little bit earlier, what kind of real politique does Putin live in? He lives in the 19th century, mm. right? He wants to be in that kind of Bismarckian, aggressive realism point of view where, you know, the, the strong prevail and the and the weak suffer what they must, right? And the whole idea, the whole moral idea behind the post-World War II international legal order was to stop that. And you know, in fact, it has its roots in the Kellogg-Briand Pact earlier and so forth. But it's a really significant um, thing. And I think so as a result, the moral superiority or the moral kind of imperatus impetus here is, is around that. And if we would talk about it that way more, I, I would hope we could actually speak to the global south, right? Because mm. I think we have not spoken to the global south particularly effectively on this question, because exactly as well he's saying, it's being framed as this kind of second Cold War. And we, we need to avoid that. Mm. And I guess one of the real problems here is that there is political language that's being used by foreign ministers, by secretaries of state, by presidents and prime ministers that really are posturing for domestic audiences. And that language tends to be of a morally absolutist character and quality. We saw it time and time again recently at the UN. I think there is something undeniably morally serious and morally significant about those condemnations. And it's very hard, I think, to be morally – I'm really reluctant about even using terms like morally here. But, you know, it feels really difficult to be, well, you know, we need to sort of, you know, change or soften our language when more and more mass graves, for instance, are being unearthed and more and more evidence of torture is being discovered. It's kind of difficult to sort of call to soften one's language. But it does strike me, Will, that, that even the language of international law, we just don't do this anymore. That is its own type of absolutism. It's absolutism within a legal framework, and I'm not saying it's of a different nature, of a different order, but it imposes, to use Waleed's term before, it does impose another red line. This is something, if you cross this, then there are consequences. You said that Putin lives in the 19th century. The possibility, and in the minds of some, the, let's say, generously, 10% likelihood, one in 10 chance that he might use those. This is a 
possibility now. This is on the table. Is there some way <laughs> within the confines of international law and these forms of mutually binding agreements that we've entered into, is there some way of nudging things in the direction of peace such that the unthinkable recedes from possibility? I mean, this is uh, trying to make this kind of answer is this kind of prediction is, is very difficult. Now, we can look to I think we can look to historical precedent a little bit, maybe to help to begin to answer that question. I mean, the first thing to point out is there's been, you know, the Russians have been involved and actually have annexed already annexed territory in, in Ukraine in 2014, Crimea. That's right. Um, and then they were actively supporting uh, insurgents in the Donbass region for seven years after that. And now here we are in 2022. So. There was there were attempts to try to use kind of international agreements to, um, you know, it's called the Minsk Agreement to try to solve that or to bring that to some sort of conclusion. I think maybe in a couple years time that might be possible. It does not appear to be possible at the moment. Sorry, what might be possible? Some sort of international agreement, which would involve a kind of it would be a three way agreement. And the key thing here is we when we any kind of uh, resolution to this conflict must obviously include the Ukrainians, right? The Ukrainians have been fighting. I mean, it's important to point out Ukraine is a country of 44 million people. It has been since the 24th of February under full mobilization. All men between the ages of 18 and 50 have have been called up. They've closed the borders completely. So they are fighting this war. We are providing, obviously, you know, kind of military equipment and so forth, but they are fighting this war. So they are the ones who take the lead in negotiations with Russia. Now, if if the West is required and, and likely would be a th kind of third party in that when, you know, and that was how the Minsk agreements worked, that would be the role we would play uh, as a kind of mediator. There'd be others. I mean, Turkey would play an interesting role, I think, in mediating this. So I do think there are ways that it could be um, resolved, but it just does not seem that that is the kind of situation on the front so, yet. So, sorry, mediating what exactly? Do we mean uh, giving some international recognition to annexation? Well, I mean, this is a big question. I mean, and, and ultimately, again, the, the key factor here is the Ukrainian people that Zelensky, President Zelensky has said any agreement, mm. which includes any formal secession of land, including Crimea, would require a referendum, right, by the by the Ukrainian people. And I presume any president who came after him would require the same thing. Mm. Right? And of course, and I think that is absolutely defensible. So, again, we... Our role as the quote unquote collective West is limited in this, right? In, in how much we can bargain on behalf of a, a people who are operating within their own sovereign territory and their own sovereign borders and who are ultimately the ones who are going to have to decide how to end this war um, and to and to do so. You know, I don't think anyone sitting in Washington and Canberra or in Berlin or, or London is going to actually have the answer to this. It's going to require the, the Ukrainian people themselves sitting down and thinking about what can they what can they ultimately accept. But right? our, our, our involvement's not that limited in that it's act, we're up to our ears in it as far as providing support weapons, etc. And without that, Ukraine's in a very different position. So actually, if if our solidarity breaks, if we reach a point, to come back to the conversation Scott and I were having before, where we say, sorry, Ukraine, you're just going to have to wear this. Mm. Whatever you think of this ethically or, or morally, does it matter what Ukraine wants in that situation? Because if they're left to their own devices, they're in trouble. By I mean, their own admission, the, the, right, and it's I mean it's an it's an absolute fact that it, the Ukrainians have the people, they have the manpower, mm. but they don't have the technology, they don't have the. So of course we are an important ally. The West is a very important ally, but it does go down to this question of how much, and you know, so obviously we can push the Ukrainians, but I do think there is a there is an interesting moral question. I don't have the answer to this. I'm not a moral philosopher, um, but. There is a very important moral question is how much we push them. And I think mm. part of that, how much we push them, is thinking about this conflict. And you know, I think my main contribution is thinking about this conflict as one that involves Ukrainians as being the kind of key actors in making the decisions about their own territory. Right. We are not the key actors here as as. I think Putin would like that to be the fact, right, that it is ultimately up to him sitting down at a summit with Biden and they'll, they'll work it all out. Right. That's the way. It used to work in the 19th century. Um, you know, that's the way he'd like it to work now, face to face, so and so. But that it, it, that's just, I think we should resist that. 
And so as a result, we should continue to provide solidarity for the very reason, as I say, that this is a challenge to the fundamental challenge to the international legal order um, and to the post-colonial, uh, the idea of that, you know, we don't fight colonial wars and annex territory anymore. And as a result, we have a duty to provide you know, support and so forth. But we also have a duty to listen to the Ukrainians and, and for them to not be invisible in this mm. in this conflict. So it seems to me that there may well be a worst of all ways of approaching this whole issue. Some people might see this as just the nature of diplomacy or the nature of securing domestic support for something relatively other, otherwise unpopular uh, or costly overseas. One is the headline rhetoric which is existential threat, totalitarian monster, Putin has to go, there is no future with Putin at the helm. And then kind of double dealing, backroom negotiations where you're willing to compromise almost anything in order to uh, keep the unimaginable at bay. So I, I recognize, of course, that there's frontline diplomacy, there's the kind of the headline stuff where you're really speaking to Maybe you're signaling international norms, but you really are talking to your domestic audience and then willing to compromise. So there's no red line to, again, pick up what Walid was saying before. There must be a way, though, of bringing those two things together. I mean, there were there were recommendations very, very early on that the morally absolutist language that was being used about Putin and about Russia was helping exactly nobody except maybe create the requisite amount of resentment and feeling of being threatened on the part of the Russian people themselves. In other words, is there a way of our compromises becoming more principled and our headline moral language in these sorts of things becoming maybe more pedagogical? So actually informing the public rather than simply appealing to the kind of the threat paradigm. Is there some way of making our compromises a little bit more principled and making our headline moral international rhetoric a bit more restrained and constructive. I think so. I mean, and I think one thing is to, you know, again, I don't, I'm not the expert at messaging, but it's to, is to figure out a way to, to tell the Russians. Um, and I think there's been failures on this for probably 20 years, 30 years since the end of the cold war to, to tell the Russians that they're not being threatened by the expansion of NATO, that this is not a project that is trying to undermine their sovereignty that this is that this is not a project that is trying to actually lead to the territorial breakdown of Russia. I mean, in fact, there's been some, I think, very dangerous comments made by some people saying, let's decolonize Russia itself. I think that is a huge error. Mm. The idea here is that, you know, we are absolutely the, the idea behind this solidarity is that we're protecting territorial integrity, including of Russia. Because no one wants Russia to collapse with the second num most num nukes in the world, um, but also for the Russian people, right? And the impact on the region would be catastrophic. So we want to make it very clear that this is a responsible support for Ukraine. Support for Ukraine is, is protecting their borders, is protecting their self-determination. But at the same time, we also respect Russia's right to be to be a territorially integral nation, to have its own sovereignty, to make its own independent decisions. Um, and I think that kind of language, I think, would be important. Because I think a lot of what we see about this war is how we talk about it is really significant, particularly sitting outside of, you know, the Ukrainian territory of Russia as, as third parties like the West. How we talk about this is really significant, how we justify in our discussions and, and our inter interventions. And I think doing it in, in a responsible way, I think, could help. Can I ask one follow up? The expansion of NATO, though. I mean, Sweden and Finland mm. now yeah. seem almost certainly set to join NATO. NATO has opened its arms yeah. somewhat in a manner that probably would not have been the case, say, five, ten years ago. It makes a certain amount of strategic sense. I can also see it being incredibly detrimental, feeding into that very kind of Russian paranoiac narrative. I mean, I, the, I think the expansion of NATO into Finland and Sweden is not actually something that concerns Putin particularly because – and this goes again to this kind of what he, the mental world he exists in is one that sees Ukraine as special, right? Ukraine is – and to him, Ukraine, Ukrainian nationality is invisible. Ukrainians are Russians. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, and he said in a speech that Ukraine was created by Lenin in the 1920s. 
If we want to decommunize, let's let's go all the way, he said. I mean, it's pretty so so Ukraine has this special role, a special kind of and really I think quite grotesque view in his in his mind about where it stands. So as a result, NATO expansion to other countries is not is not the threat. NATO expansion into Ukraine is what really concerns him, right? That special role. So it goes all the way back to that mental mental kind of construction around the unification of the Belarusian, Ukrainian, and Russian peoples all being historically one, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's what's driving him. And, you know, again, I, it is contested in Russia and we, we and hopefully it won't be, you know, I don't think everyone shares this view, but it, it's one that he, he shares. Mm. To what extent do you think the West can de-ideologize this conflict? Mm at a time of increased ideologization on the other side of it. So you're looking at Russia, but we haven't mentioned China, and every Chinese expert who analyzes these things that I know will say, at the very least, that Xi Jinping is a much more ideologically driven leader than his predecessors who are a bit more pragmatic. This is a person who has really imbibed Mao. This is a, you know, um, whose communist leanings are there and who is probably 90% guided by ideology rather than realpolitik. In that context, does a de-ideologization on the Western side work? Could it even work? I think it could. I mean, I think it's, but again, it comes to the how we talk about this. I mean, the more we talk about this as a second Cold War, the more that someone like Xi Jinping sees this as like, well, I have to support the Russians because, you know, he feels himself in a Cold War with the United States, right? But, but he like, might already feel that for ideological reasons anyway. But if, I think if we can talk, he might. I mean, who knows if we can change his 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 views again. Um, but, you know, the ultimate idea here is that, you know, we have an agreed upon, including the Chinese, have agreed to an international legal system that is that does not allow the annexation of territory. This is this is a this is that's a red line, as we're calling it. Sure, but at the same time as the West is talking about def- coming in to defend Taiwan, um, at the same time as we probably have our misgivings, have an argument about whether we're expressing this loudly enough or not, but about the Uyghur population in China. In other words, China sees itself defending the pro- the, the principle of territorial integrity against Western incursion. It's very difficult to imagine in that circumstance that China's going to say, oh, actually, I like that you believe in you know, the importance of these norms. It's, it's, it's different. I mean, Taiwan is a different situation than Ukraine, right? Ukraine is a clear, clearly drawn borders. The Taiwan, the Taiwan border with mainland China is, of course, highly contested. Yeah, but right? they see it as a clear border. Like, that, that's the point. They see it that way, and it, but it's just as a matter of international law, this is a much this is a much bigger challenge, and it's interesting. I mean, they met Xi Jinping met Putin, and the and the the Chinese consider, gave significant concerns. Right, Putin. One of the reasons why people suggest that mobilization has happened is because Putin is is been told by Xi, get this over with. Right, so so there is a sense that Chinese support is not strong. Right. And that China is concerned about this because they don't want to see this fundamental challenge to the international legal order that essentially is what we're seeing. Um, so as a result, so I don't think China's, China's support is there. They, don't, they, they see Russia as an important balance to the United States. But at the same time, they're not happy with what Russia is doing and continues to do. Will, we're indebted to you. Thanks very much for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, that was William Partlett, Associate Professor at the Melbourne Law School, author of The Post-Soviet as Post-Colonial, A New Paradigm for Understanding Constitutional Dynamics in the Former Soviet Empire. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Scott, we're done. See you soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.